Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. Even if the name Horatio Alger doesn't ring a bell, the genre of stories he made famous are familiar. A poor child with every disadvantage in the world manages to become a great success purely through grit and determination. It's a narrative that reinforces the notion that, in America, anyone can be rich. In turn, it also reinforces the prevalent myth of exceptionalism. This means that the poor are poor because they're less motivated and less skilled and are therefore deserving of the punishment of poverty. So like nothing else is influencing their material conditions. Although plenty of Americans believe this particular fairy tale to be true, other instances of personal triumph that seem to deliver no obvious financial reward, such as, for instance, getting sober, can carry a stigma and along with it, withering judgment. In the October issue of Harper's Magazine, journalist Sierra Crane Murdoch details a letter she was asked to write expressing her belief that friend and former subject Lissa Yellowbird would make a good foster parent. Yellowbird, a member of the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nation, struggled with substance abuse and had her own children placed in foster homes while she was being abused by an ex. And though she, in the most reductive sense possible, has survived, Murdoch understands that Yellowbird's resilience might not be viewed as a badge of honor by the state or society at large. As Murdoch unspools the question of what makes a good mother, and whether being childless, she's even qualified to answer, she probes the long, ongoing history of Native children separated from their parents. I spoke with Murdoch about her essay, decolonizing journalistic traditions, and how Native issues are reported by the media. Could you tell listeners the story of how you and Lissa Yellowbird met? Yeah, I met Lissa in 2014. I was up on the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation, which is in western North Dakota. It was right in the middle of the Bakken oil boom that had begun around 2008 in other parts of the state, but really 2009, 2010 on the reservation. And I'd been going there as a magazine journalist writing about the boom and had heard about a murder, the disappearance of a young oil worker, a white oil worker who'd gone missing from the reservation. And Lissa was investigating. And so she was just sort of a citizen sleuth. She was a member of the Mandan Haratsa Rikra Nation. And she lived in Fargo at the time. She had gotten out of prison a year earlier, well, a year before she started searching. And she had just sort of become obsessed with searching for this this young man, and then eventually for other indigenous people who had gone missing from the reservation or from the upper Midwest in general. So I was really fascinated by her. I ended up writing a book about Lissa, about her search for this young oil worker as sort of a window into the oil boom, seeing how the boom was transforming her home, the reservation. And, and But the book, you know, the book has been called A True Crime. It's called Yellowbird. And, you know, that's that's true, obviously. It is about this true crime. Um, but also underneath that, the book is largely about Lissa and her family and these relationships with her children, with her mother and her grandmother, these many generations of Yellowbird women within her family. And that's sort of what led me around to this essay that I wrote for Harper's. Right, because she asked you, because you guys do have a rapport, you do have a relationship that transcends journalist and 
subject. And you acknowledge this in the first section of the essay. Lissa asked you to help her complete paperwork that would vouch for her and say that she is a good mother to foster two children who she had previously cared for. Exactly. And the first section of this essay ends on the uncomfortable acknowledgement that in the eyes of the state, because of your whiteness and your lack of a criminal record, you have the power that Lissa does not have, which in this case means power to help or harm her in her attempt to become a foster mother. Of course, as your piece implies, this power is not disconnected from the power that a journalist often has relative Mm -hmm. to their subjects. So could you talk a bit about how you understand that connection and how you experienced the power dynamic in your relationship with Lissa, as well as while you were reporting your book? Yeah, I mean, there has long been this idea in journalism, right, that we have to make this distinct separation between ourselves and our subjects. And that if we don't do that, you know, our our work is tainted or fated to be overly sympathetic in some way. And certainly, I think there are legitimate circumstances in which that separation is necessary. You know, a lot of investigative journalism is holding power to account or exposing abuses of that power. And, you know, in my book, I I was investigating a lot of people who were potentially doing wrong or abusing their power. And so I didn't have the same relationship with them that I had with Lissa. But I, you know, I don't think that separation completely deserves to be applied. And and this was, you know, a, a feeling I came to in my work, you know, that it necessarily has to be applied to all aspects of journalism. And certainly not the sort, you know, that goes deep into other people's lives. And I'd love to have conversations with other journalists who do this kind of, you know, long-term immersive journalism years living inside of other other people's lives. But it's just impossible to avoid a certain level of intimacy with people you are spending every single day with who are sharing, you know, their deepest secrets. Um, They're sharing their deepest secrets with you over a very long period of time and where you're watching their lives change in real time and where inevitably you are impacting their life as much as they're impacting yours. It feels a little false to kind of say that there is there is this great separation between the two of you. And so I certainly felt that in my relationship with Lissa as I was going through the book, you know, our relationship deepened over time. She became more comfortable with me. She became more trusting of me. And and similarly, I became more trusting that, you know, the things she would share with me were were true <laughs> and, and true in the deepest sense. And she shared a lot about her life that was incredibly difficult. And so, but then again, I, I had never sort of helped her directly with anything, you know, that wasn't, we were still, I was still the person who was writing this book about her life. And I have a line in that first section of the essay where I, you know, I say, I I get this questionnaire in the mail asking if I could recommend Lissa to be a foster mother. And one of the first questions is describe your relationship to the applicant. (laughs) And, you know, I think, okay, well, I guess I would call her a friend maybe at this point, but Lissa, you know, thinks this is, um, I write, you know, a dumb, reductive, colonized way of going about the work, which are words she has used when, you know, I once actually invited Lissa to a journalism class I taught and a student asked, you know, do you consider Sierra a friend? And she went off on sort of how colonized that concept was in journalism that we do have to sort of create this separation. But, you know, I also write, she would agree that friend is a very reductive way to describe our relationship as well. You know, I am this person who asked her 
to tell me a lot about her life. And she ended up exposing to me her deepest secrets, some of which she had never told anyone. And, and that's a very particular kind of intimacy that maybe goes beyond a friend and also beyond journalist. So yeah, when she, you know, when she asked me to recommend her to become a foster mother, I, I thought of a few things. I thought, first of all, wow, like, <laughs> I know everything about you. You know, I know every reason why maybe you should not become a foster mother. But also, I think I knew, too, you know, like, I am this white woman who has never been a mother. And Lissa is a Native American woman who has been a mother five times over. And now I'm being asked to say, you know, whether or not she is fit to be a mother. And so I thought about, A, the irony of that, and then B, the long history behind that, right? There's a long legacy of white individuals and institutions judging whether or not Indigenous women are fit for motherhood by taking their children away and putting them in boarding schools. And now, I, I as I write about in the essay, you know, that leading into a more current predicament of these children being taken and placed in foster care families or um, adopted out. Right. And I mean, I would like to stay on this question of perspective, mm-hmm. because Lewis Wallace, a trans author who's written a book called The View from Somewhere, he was fired years ago from Marketplace, like an NPR show, after writing a very long blog post about how the media's reliance on unbiasedness does not work for trans people because mm. to be unbiased in the face of transphobia means to invalidate your own experience. And obviously that that critique applies to a, a Black author writing about someone who is virulently racist or anti-Black. So mm. do you feel like... and maybe less politically charged. I want to go back to the the thing you said about Lissa saying that friend or that this concept of journalist and subject is very colonized. Mm-hmm. When you're writing about Native issues, do you feel like there's a layer that perhaps you're not penetrating or have you found a way to take a more expansive view or just establish a rapport with your subjects that breaks through that, the things that might otherwise be missed or seem less obvious to us on the outside? Yeah, I could go so many different directions with that question. I mean, I, you know, this was something I thought about every single day as I was working on my book, you know, what are my blind spots? (laughs) And certainly I felt like I had a lot of them and I still feel like I have a lot of them. There are only so many things you can do, I think, as a white journalist writing about Native community to sort of make up for your inherent biases. And so I think inevitably there will always be certain frames that you miss or that maybe the frame you come into that story with is going to create those blind spots automatically. I don't have, you know, I, I have thought about this question. I've answered this versions of this question so many times. And Sorry. I, no, no, I, I it's really important. And it I, it's really important. important. And that's why it keeps coming up. And I think it's, and I, I, you know, I also geek out about it. <laughs> you know, it's something I talk about with friends all the time. Yeah. And each time I feel like my answers come out a little different, but I, you know, Lissa, And I had a journalist source relationship. She wouldn't deny that, you know, every time I was with her and certainly our relationship has changed since I published the book. But as I was working on the book, 
you know, I always had a notebook out. I always had a recorder out. There was this sort of physical symbol of, you know, what we were doing there together. But at the same time, you know, as I as I said, there was a certain level of intimacy that we couldn't avoid. And not only that, but it was a certain level of intimacy that I realized wasn't a handicap to my work. It was a benefit to my work that through getting to this place where maybe, you know, like I'll, I'll admit, you know, we came to this sort of place of unconditional love in a sense, you know, where it's like she could tell me every single thing that she had done in her life that may have been unbelievably ugly. And she trusted me that I would be able to put all of those things in this story that I was writing and and place them within a context that made them meaningful. And I think that's a very difficult place to get to with someone, particularly someone who is from a community that has been traditionally oppressed, who maybe does not feel automatically a certain level of trust that you will get what she's talking about or get the you know community that she comes from or the experiences she's had. And also, you know, there were so many experiences she had had apart from being Indigenous that I didn't understand. Like I say in this essay, I'd never been a mother. You know, I had never been addicted to drugs. I've never been the victim of extreme violence. So there are all there are all these layers, you know, in any story that we go into that we have to understand. You know, I, I had all these layers of not understanding. <laughs> and I think the only way to get close to an understanding of her experience was to get close to her in that way and to get to a place where she could really tell me these things with as much honesty as she could and then trust me to sort of deal respectfully with those events in her life. Does that answer your question? Yes. Because <laughs> it is, I mean, obviously there's a very surface level very superficial way of dealing with this question. Right. Which is to say, yes, you always have the right, or no, you never have the right. Mm -hmm. And those are both very reductive viewpoints, and yet you see them everywhere. And so to kind of hear somebody talk about getting to that nuanced point is very valuable, I think. Yeah. And also to just be like, to acknowledge there's a limit. Right. I mean, I, I... you know, it's the type of thinking that Lissa was calling out that, you know, has been wielded in newsrooms for a very long time, right, to justify this idea that white reporters are like all knowing when it comes to non-white communities and that they may even be better at reporting on those communities than a reporter with a racial or cultural or socioeconomic identity that's similar to that communities, which obviously is totally false, and we're getting past that in media. But, you know, there has also conversely been this sense that, you know, you only have a right to tell a story from a place of fully knowing, of fully experiencing, and being from that particular identity, which, you know, I think a lot of people have pushed back against as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm a journalist, you know, like, uh, and journalism is the act of frequently going into communities that are not your own and trying to understand them. And, you know, I, I, I do believe in journalism as a practice. I, you know, I see it as essential. And But I also, you know, one of the questions that has come up for me consistently in this process of writing this book, and which is sort of underlying this essay, is like, how, how can we do it in a more conscious way? Right. Because it seems like 
you know, again, this has to do with the way the media works or chooses to work, but it often seems that native issues are buried or outright ignored or pegged as an addendum to another story like Gabby Petito. Right. Standing Rock. That was going on for a long time before any, like, that became sort of, you know, made headlines. Totally. And yeah. It's not like, I mean, Native communities are suffering the effects of global warming, mm-hmm. lack of clean drinking water, child separation through foster care, you know, historically as well. And they're alternately ignored or over policed. You know, there are healthcare disparities. There's so many problems. The absence of a discussion of Native issues is so glaring in this country as compared mm-hmm. to somewhere like Canada, <laughs> where that was the first place I heard people doing land acknowledgments. Mm-hmm. There's obviously, I mean, we'll, we can get to this later, but the question of the residential schools, the mm-hmm. last of which in Canada closed in 1996. So I guess it's sort of this colonial... I mean, again, I I would agree with Lissa that there's this very colonial idea (laughs) of the separation because when you participate in that separation, people don't know that these things are happening. And part of that has to do with the way in which colonialism has worked in this country, but it also has to do with the way in which we discuss race and identity in this country. And I'm not going to say that there's a perfect way to do it or one person is doing it perfectly, but there's still like... (laughs) The danger of not taking that chance to understand seems so much more perilous. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think you're totally right, right? Colonialism in many senses is the, is this separation, right? This sense or need for separation, sort of compartmentalizing people or ideas or, you know, jobs into, you know, into their own spaces. Inventing and- race. A period. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think, you know, the separation Lissa was having trouble with was, you know, obviously the separation between journalist and source. And then in journalism in general, or just speaking to what you raised, you know, the sense that we don't hear that much about Indigenous stories, except when, you know, Gabby Petito goes missing and suddenly people are like, why aren't we talking about all the Native women who are going missing as much as we talk about her? I think a lot of it comes, again, from that separation, right? The sense that Indigenous stories are separate from non-Indigenous stories. And I think that has long been a false separation. You know, that's something that I am trying to do in my work and tried to do in my book is show sort of what happens at the collision points of Native and non-Native communities and how much we learn about all of us in in sort of observing those interactions. Because frankly, we are engaging with the project of colonialism all the time. Yes. Um, and, and that was something I really wanted to get into in this essay as well, that, you know, that it's falling back on us, right? Mm-hmm. It's not only sort of continuing to oppress the people that it has always intended to oppress, but it's also hurting non-Indigenous people. You know, that it seeps into our consciousness in these ways that sort of like undergird our shame and our guilt, and that shame and guilt then guides our behaviors in ways that might not be great to our health. Like, you know, putting these undue burden, <laughs> putting the undue burden on women to sort of like uphold certain standards of motherhood. You know, that doesn't just affect Indigenous women. It also in- affects, you know, all women. Yeah, no, I wanted to talk about that. Like you, I'm 
not a parent, but I'm very familiar with how society feels entitled to treat mothers. And it starts with people you've never met in your life walking up to you and <laughs> caressing your baby bump and telling you, <laughs> oh, you shouldn't eat that. You shouldn't drink that because you're pregnant. Right. And then when you're carrying the baby or, or toddler around, you get all sorts of unsolicited advice about how to or how not to care for the child. And it's like, I mean, I remember seeing this woman, this elderly woman start sort of chewing out this new mother because she had like the plastic part sort of this plastic sheet over her baby stroller because it was raining and the woman's like don't you know the baby can't breathe i saw it on the news like, <laughs> and, it's, like, and it's i mean I could, it's like one of a billion examples i could think of and this this is obviously the way in which this manifests depends on race class marriage status that sort of mm -hmm. thing and it's it so this is physically and emotionally invasive and it speaks to the power of the amorphous pervasive idea of a good mother mm -hmm. so what what empowers those interactions like is it simply because the idea about what being a good mother carries importance for the future and that we really have to like think about the future or is it something larger than that yeah, I mean, that is the question that, <laughs> that uh, guided this essay. And I can't say I have entirely, you know, I can't say I have a full answer to that. I mean, I think you're totally right. You know, like we've all been on a plane when someone's baby starts crying and like all of a sudden everyone's squirming around them and you can just like see people just wanting to like <laughs> leap in and tell them how to stop their baby <laughs> from crying. But I think, you know, this essay came about because after I published the book, one of the questions I got consistently, and which actually consistently surprised me, was, do I think Lissa is a good mother? And, you know, I got this a lot from book groups. I got this from people, you know, I was doing a lot of online events. And I would hear this question over and over. And I think it mainly surprised me that I heard it so often. But then, you know, when I thought about it later on, I, it didn't seem quite so surprising but I guess why it surprised me initially was because so much of the book I wrote is about Lissa's failings as a mother. You know, she was addicted for a lot of her children's childhoods. She was absent because of that. But also the book is about these deeply loving relationships we, she has with all her relatives and particularly with her children. And so this question, you know, is Lissa a good mother? It just seemed so strange and reductive to then sort of take everything I'd written about and put it into a yes or no answer. And I thought, you know, like, does this question matter? Why does it matter? And then, you know, of course, began thinking about this long legacy of, of individuals and institutions determining who gets to be a mother in America. And so, yeah, I, and, and then, you know, through that, I, I dug more deeply into the history of white institutions sort of deciding when or when not Indigenous women were deserving of their own motherhood. So I, I write about the boarding school era. And, you know, this began actually in their, right, I think Indigenous children have been sent to boarding schools since the 1700s um, or, or sent off to schooling since the 1700s. But it really became sort of a national campaign around 1860, when government agents began going on to reservations and rounding up Indigenous children and shipping them off to very distant boarding schools, a lot of them in the East, 
the most famous one of which is the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, which was run by this guy, Richard Pratt, captain, military guy who um, had the famous line, kill the Indian in him and save the man. And it was actually Carlisle Indian Industrial School where Lissa's great, great, great grandfather, Elktung, was sent in the early 1900s. And so I write about that. I write about, you know, this legacy of boarding schools within her family. And but I also write about this woman, Estelle Real, who, you know, Richard Pratt gets a lot of the blame for sort of creating creating the ethos of the boarding schools. But there was, of course, a whole bureaucratic apparatus around those boarding schools that was creating the curriculum, creating, you know, those standards by which students should learn there. And one of those uh, most influential bureaucrats was this woman, Estelle Real, who was appointed by Congress to be the head of all Indian boarding schools and who created the curriculum for the schools called the Uniform Course of Study. And if you read this, you know, you notice that the Uniform Course of Study was emphasizing industrial training. So like manual labor for boys, sort of like homemaking for girls. There were some academic components, more academic components, but um, very few. And the idea in Estelle Real's words was to make the Indian girl more motherly. And that, you know, the only real conceivable role in society for a Native woman was to be a mother. And it wasn't really until she became a mother that she could become a citizen, but it also in order to become a citizen of the United States and to sort of feed into this upholding of moral American values, you know, she also had to become less native. And so it was about breaking down the indigeneity of these young children and bringing them into European American society. Right. And I mean, I think, I think that it what you've, how you've laid this out is really thorough and it speaks to again, how we divide and value people and that, you know, you can't really separate kind of the the patriarchal from whiteness or colonialism mm-hmm. or all these other mm-hmm. things that have shaped our society and continue to shape our society. And you kind of can't avoid if you want to continue participating in society or just existing in society. But I mean, my, my question was more about interpersonal relationships, mm. not necessarily the macro level, because the, the obviously why it's macro level is because there is some desire between people for this to be a policy, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, just like to this day, there is, you know, this very <laughs> free, very free and very invasive interventions, attacks, unsolicited advice given to mm-hmm. all sorts of mothers. Right. Right. I, you know, as someone who isn't a mother, I probably don't, (laughs) I don't have like as much firsthand experience with those sort of, you know, microaggressions toward motherhood. But yeah, you know, I I see it in, obviously, I saw it in the reaction to Lissa when I published my book. I saw it to, you know, I have a section of the essay where I'm writing about Lissa's daughter and how her daughter has these four children and her daughter and I are, you know, born only five days apart. And, you know, I'm speaking to an acquaintance about (laughs) 
about Sean Ellis's daughter. And she says, oh, someone like that should not be having so many children. <laughs> and, right. and so, yeah, I, you know, I was constantly running up against these judgments. And I think, you know, that led to me thinking about like, okay, <laughs> well, what, what do I imagine motherhood being for myself? You know, like I have clearly been raised um, to feel that motherhood should look this very particular kind of way. Whereas all these other women that I'm spending my time with and who I'm writing about have had motherhoods that really look scary, I think, to a lot of non-Indigenous people because of the trauma that they've gone through. Um, you know, but like, <laughs> I think, and I don't know if this came across in the essay, but I think I was constantly just in awe of the amount of love between Lissa and her children and her children and her children's children and, and all of these generations and their family. And I often thought to myself, this is not in the essay, but I often thought to myself, like, okay, why, why is why has Lissa survived so much, right? She's been the victim of incredible violence. She's inflicted some of that violence on herself. Like, why is she still alive? And I think a lot of it is luck, but one of the best answers I could come up with is just that she is so surrounded by so much love in her family. And and she was raised, you know, not just by her mother, but by all these other relatives who sort of stepped in when necessary. And I think, you know, that's a very different idea of motherhood than the one that a lot of us are raised within, which is that, you know, you have your immediate relatives and maybe you have a grandma or grandpa living with you. But like, you know, for the most part, your family is pretty small and contained. And like, if you don't receive that kind of care within your immediate family, then it's not then you don't have a good family or something. Right. <laughs> and I think or that you'll suffer. Right, because of the, the, that lack. Right, that you can't possibly become a good mother yourself. <laughs> and right. that, I think that was the thing with Lissa's daughter, Shauna, when I heard that comment, like, oh, she shouldn't be having so many children. And, you know, Shauna is an incredible mother who's like, has no addiction, you know, who is working a high powered job in Minneapolis and sends her kids to this, you know, great school and, and very much lives the kind of life that you know, probably a lot of us live, but also is raising her children alone, like a lot of mothers in America. And so I think there was obviously this, this judgment that was an imaginary judgment, right? Like, oh, gosh, what, what could go wrong? <laughs> you yeah. know, so much could go wrong, because she came from this history of, of, you know, living with a mother who wasn't, who didn't embody the values of motherhood that most of us hold up. Yeah, is that more to your question? <laughs> yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think this sort of, there's this line in your story that gets to the heart of who Melissa is, which is her honesty is political. It has stakes. Right. And that one of the amazing things about Lissa is that she had this amazing, she's suffered. She's experienced a lot of trauma, intergenerational and in her own life. Mm -hmm. Her life has been shaped by the way in which the American government has always and continues to treat Native people. Yet she can't help but be herself, which is a super honest person who's confident. <laughs> you know, and it's it's really, it's it's very beautiful, but also I think you're right, <laughs> you know, the observation that it has stakes is also very much true. But what should we make of a system 
that incentivizes those who are applying to become foster parents to burnish or outright lie about who they are because it's again it's this 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 problem where in order to project an image you know maybe there are lies of omission but you wouldn't because on paper lisa might not look like a good mother you know that danger but the the question is just like because of this really pervasive idea insidious and amorphous people lie in order to get children and it's there's a huge <laughs> problem with that right yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i clearly think the system is flawed you know and i have i i know there's a tremendous amount of important and strong journalism out there about you know the foster care system specifically and and this essay doesn't really go deeply into the system itself or you know the certifications people get in order to become parents but anecdotally, right, like Lissa's own children went to foster care and they were placed with white families and her son ended up with a traumatic brain injury. And, you know, so there's, she has this personal experience of having her children being placed within this system with families that were deemed, you know, appropriate, good mothers, good fathers, and it didn't work out so well. And I think, her honesty, right? I, I say, yeah, she's honest. She has stakes. She tells me she wants me to be as honest as possible on this application. And we have conversations around that. And it's, I come through the essay to this realization, right? That she is someone who is highly qualified to take care of these two boys who've just gone through a tremendous amount of trauma because she's someone who's also gone through a tremendous amount of trauma and that there aren't necessarily having been through trauma doesn't mean that you're broken yes. <laughs> it just means that you <laughs> yes. have, it just means that you've had to deal with a lot and you also you've been forced to confront really dark things and you may actually be more comfortable with those really dark things and more capable of showing people how you actually sort of sit in that darkness, be with that darkness, mm -hmm. you know, and heal from it. And I, I think this goes back to actually one of the questions you asked in the very beginning, right, about Lissa being someone that I could connect with on this really intimate level in order to tell this story. And part of the reason why she was sort of the ideal person to write this deep of a piece about is because she is that honest and she has gone through addiction. She has gone through violence and, and she has come to this place where she actually doesn't really feel a lot of shame anymore. She's sort of like gone through colonization and come through out the other side in a sense. And I think that's just like an unbelievable gift to have been able to shed off that shame and that's why I was able to write about her in such an honest way and not feel like I was being you know censored by her in any way about her story and similarly she didn't want me to censor myself as I was writing this application and and there were other people who were writing you know um, recommendations for her or one other person who was sort of censoring her <laughs> and she was uncomfortable with that or she wasn't uncomfortable with it but she just found it interesting you know and she's like of course you know I I don't fit into this box of what makes a good parent but they're this person is shaping me to fit inside this box. And so she was saying to me, you know, like, don't shape me. You know, this is like a political act to say, like, we don't need to subscribe to the version of motherhood 
that other people think is good. Well, at the risk of saying too much about myself <laughs> as a person who has uh, experienced certain things, maybe you could call it trauma. Mm. And is also painfully honest, who cannot mm. help but be <laughs> even in the it just because it feels wrong. Because again, mm -hmm. like the shame that you experience as someone with substance abuse problems, family that doesn't fit into the dominant idea of what a family should be. You go mm -hmm. through a lot of shame. Right. And there just comes a point where you're fed up with it and you're just like, I made it. Yeah. <laughs> I made it. <laughs> Leave me alone. This is a water I swim in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't need to try and make me into something I'm not because I've been so much more than whoever's going to be reading this essay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> I do. And it's like, it's such a secure place to be, you know. <laughs> I just, yeah. But, there, I, but it still doesn't prevent people from judging you. No. Extremely harshly and penalizing you for it. <laughs> right. And it also doesn't, you know, I, and I think, I wrote two versions of this essay. The first version I sent in to my editor at Harper's did not include some of the things that, you know, come in at the end because that happened after I wrote the first draft. So, and one of the things that you learn through the essay right, is that like Lissa is not, she has lost this shame and is in this really beautiful place because of it, but she still lives within the same system and she's still vulnerable to that system in a certain way. And so, yeah, like the pain doesn't necessarily go away, but also what she holds on to is this sort of like sense of survival and, and an ability to sort of heal from the things that do come her way, like knowing that she's capable of that. And ultimately, you know, again, that is the thing that, I felt like would make her an incredible foster mother, you know, to be with these kids who come from those places and for them to be like, yeah, it's, it's okay. We are who we are. And, and we don't have to feel attached to that past, even though people will continually try to attach us to that past. Right. And on that point, actually, have there been any new developments in Lissa's attempt to become a certified foster parent? Yeah. So uh, this goes, you know, I, <laughs> I was wondering if I should like keep going with this in the essay, but it wasn't really about, you know, the ultimate result. But she, you know, she went through that whole process with me. We, you know, we got all the paperwork submitted and then she didn't hear anything for months and months. And, you know, she she was taking care of the boys already. They stayed with her. They were living with her for approximately a year and she never heard anything. And it and when she looked into it, she found out that the case had been transferred to a different jurisdiction and that the paperwork had kind of been lost in that process. And she <sighs> wasn't getting paid. <laughs> she did not have their medical records. Um, she could not get them doctor's appointments. <sighs> so it just, the whole process sort of collapsed. And she, you know, they, I, I think it's up in the air as to what will happen next. But the um, boys are currently with a relative who is able to like get them doctor's appointments because they're more official guardians. So, yeah, so we'll see. Well, that kind of says everything you need to know. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that kind of grim ending. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or not grim, I would say it's unfair. Yeah. Like many yeah. things. And I, it's sort of, I don't know, again, maybe speaking too much from my personal experience, it seems like, you know, certain things happen to a certain class of people. And if you're above that, you're, you're going to be okay. But mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, more importantly than my class resentment, um, 
<laughs> has has Lissa responded to this essay? Yeah. So, you know, as we were talking in the beginning about, you know, like the boundaries between journalist and source and, and when and how and why you might cross those. When I wrote the book, I got to this point where I realized I wanted her to um, read it. And to, you know, help me with the fact-checking process, first of all, but also, you know, to be able to respond to it before it went to press. And so I ended up kind of involving her in some of the editing at the very end. And I, she, she was like, Sierra, you know, I, you know, have you ever seen me like sit down and read a book? I have, you know, I'm too busy. (laughs) I have terrible ADHD. You're going to have to come and you're going to have to read it to me. So I uh, went out to, I met her in Minneapolis where she was doing some workshops and um, brought her a copy and she ended up reading the whole thing on her own. But since then, she's really, I realized in that process that she, again, was just this like ideal (laughs) person to work with in a process like this, because, you know, she never asked me to sort of take anything out. She told me the places where she didn't think I'd gone deep enough, where I hadn't mm. sort of captured the really, really dark things that felt especially dark to her. And so she had really helped me toward the end of writing that book to go deeper in places where she thought I could go deeper. And I'm really grateful to her for that. I think she, first of all, has an incredible narrative sense herself, but then also, again, having that lack of shame. I think she finally reading the book recognized what I'd been trying to do all along and sort of helped me get there in just a really generous way. But so when I wrote this essay, when I finished the first version, I had kind of told her that I was working on it. And then I I ended up recording a version of it. She prefers listening to things than, than mm. reading them. And so I recorded a version and sent it to her. And she, yeah, she was very, she was very pleased. She just said, I think you I think you get it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, was, I was grateful for that. Well, I won't ask if you're going to send her this. <laughs> this? Oh, I'll send it to her. No. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, hi, Lisa. Big fan. <laughs> I, I read the book about you. It was great. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, know. I'll, I'll send it to her. We've done a few events together, which is always just a lot of fun and so we get asked awkward questions and get to answer them for each other and <laughs> yeah yeah well, as we were saying before it's it's a really important thing to do because otherwise only certain people get to tell their story about trauma about survival about their experience with substance abuse their their experiences with you know domestic violence and mm-hmm. that really limits the conversation and the conversation suffers for it Again, right. the, the value placed on certain stories or people who have access to tell those stories, financial, mm-hmm. time, what what have you. And you know, sort of breaking through that obviously would allow us to have maybe a broader understanding of who can be a good mother, who is a good mother, rather than just looking at someone and saying, they're damaged goods. They're just going to repeat the same problems. Right. Or even asking that question in the first place. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But thank you so much. This was really thank you. wonderful. Yeah, this was really fun to talk. Thank you. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. 
To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save 